they come at it from a perspective where abortion is a human right, that to be pro-abortion is the humanitarian position. And they refuse to acknowledge that the unborn baby is a human. You know, that I think is, is sort of the most stunning thing. Dear Jane, the Life-Giving Podcast. We know that the media is pro-abortion, but why? Welcome to Dear Jane. I'm your host, Scott Baker. When it comes to media bias, what is not covered is as telling as what is covered. Take, for example, the silence regarding the destruction of pregnancy centers. Tim Graham with Newsbusters and Media Research Center joins us today. Tim, why is the media so dishonest when it comes to anything related to abortion? Well, I think we've known for many, many years now, going back to the Lichter-Rothman-Lichter polls um, that you have in the, in the media elites, secular, liberal people uh, who you know, rarely attend religious services. They are Democrat voters. And so with that comes all of the Democrat positions on abortion and gender identity and all of those things. And, uh, you know, back in the day in the 1980s or the 1990s, you could be a pro-life Democrat. And that really has died out, just like it's really harder now to be a pro-choice Republican. Um, But yeah, the news media, I mean, going back from when I started at the Media Research Center in 1989, I mean, we were doing abortion material. We had a monthly newsletter. We were pretty much doing something on abortion every month. It seems to me, and you tell me if this is uh, hyperbole or not, it just seems to me that um, for all of the different things that they cover in an unbalanced nature, man, it gets back to abortion. I mean, abortion is like one of the top priorities for them to distort and to lie about or, you know, cover incorrectly. Well, and the oddest thing about it to me is that they come at it from a perspective where abortion is a human right, that to be pro-abortion is the humanitarian position. And they refuse to acknowledge that the unborn baby is a human. Um, you know, that I think is is sort of the most stunning thing is that there's there's no attempt to sort of address the sensitive nature there. They really come at this from the perspective of in a pregnancy, there's only one human, which obviously does not match bio, biological reality. But I mean, they, they have come at this and they have gotten fiercer since the Dobbs decision. And, uh, you know, PBS had a, a segment recently where they were trying to suggest that domestic violence was on the upswing because of Dobbs and because of something now called reproductive coercion, where the abusive men were taking away their girlfriend or wife's uh, birth control and forcing her to be pregnant. And see, okay, let's just follow that example for a second, because we know for a fact that one of the challenges is coercion, but in the other direction, right? The, 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 she feels pressured to get the abortion, but you'll never hear that side of the story. Yes, that's very rare, is the idea that, that women who are trying to figure out how to make a choice like this often face intense pressure from boyfriends to abort. 
I mean, yes, that's one of many angles here that the news media just is simply not interested in. Uh, and again, they don't really want to focus on, they, they hate it, the whole idea of, well, don't force the women to look at what they're carrying. That's cruel and inhumane to make them actually look at a sonogram. That's really how extreme they are. And one of the other things where you can really see their extremism is they really believe in an unchallenged, unqualified right to abort. The Democrat platform is very clear that they see no restrictions. And so when a Republican candidate of any kind says the Democrat or Democrats support abortion up to birth or after birth, and we obviously know that in some cases, abortion advocates have said, you know, the right to choose extends to, oops, the baby came out of the birth canal. The independent fact checkers and journalists in general get very unhappy when you underline they believe in abortion up until birth or after birth, and then they start talking about how rare it is. The rarity of it does not make it wrong. Just like, you know, rape, how common is rape? Would you try to say it's not such a big deal because it's rare? Yeah, you know, it's interesting how they manipulate the vocabulary. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, like reproductive rights, um, uh, health care. That's a big one. They have, yeah. you know, they've they've come to um, use that. It's health care for women. Um, it's just they they now, you know, they manipulate the vocabulary. How do we push back against that? Well, obviously, the pro-life side has tried to say abortion isn't health care. Yes. Now they use the phrase abortion care. Uh, I really hate that one. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, this is the this again is one of those really inhumane uses of terminology that utterly denies the humanity of the unborn baby. Who is cared for under abortion care? Um, obviously, phrases like this, they probably took into a focus group and tried to decide which ones that voters actually responded to. They went and did polling. That's how this comes out. So, yes. They won't use the word abortion now. They'll say reproductive health care or women's health care. And that is not a precise term, especially if you're trying to say, well, the Republicans are against women's health care. No, we all believe our wives and sisters and daughters deserve health care, uh, but not the kind you're talking about. So you mentioned like uh, focus groups and studies like that. Just how... How organized is the other side in terms of, well, and how much um, in concert are they with the media? Is it just, I mean, it just didn't happen this way, right? No, I mean, there is a, obviously a revolving door between the media and the Democratic Party. Democrats come work in the so-called objective media. People in the media then go get jobs in Democratic politics or even in the abortion movement. Let's use the example of CBS News reporter Kate Smith, who, while she was a reporter for Kate Smith, was extremely pro-abortion. So it was somehow not surprising at all that Kate Smith then revolved into being a PR operative for Planned Parenthood. One could joke she didn't really change jobs, just words on her business card. Change two was paying for her salary, basically. That's about the only... Right. The only the only difference, you know, 
what a lot of people don't understand is the bias manifests itself not only in how they cover what they cover, but what they then refuse to recover or refuse to cover. So, for example, you know, we work a lot and talk a lot to uh, pregnancy centers and, you know, there have been physical violence on a lot of these centers. Boy, to, to get to find any news coverage of it, um, especially beyond maybe an initial mention, you use nothing but crickets. Uh, it's so it's so a lot of times it's what they choose not to cover. And that's absolutely true. Look, there's two main forms of bias we study at Newsbusters and the Media Research Center, and that is bias by commission, which we're all used to when they come on and they say their use their fancy terms like women's health care and bias by omission, where they're just we refuse to touch this certain subject. Um, you know, yeah, this was a little came home to me as a Wisconsin native when they did this to the when this wasn't a crisis pregnancy center, this pro-life group threw uh, Molotov cocktails in the window, you know? And so, yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's Molotov cocktails, there's vandalism, there's violent threats. The vandalism often says, if the woman's right to choose isn't safe, neither are you. There's a reason they're not gonna cover that because it doesn't make the pro-abortion people look like nice people who are well-meaning and humanitarians. Um, yeah, there's a lot of this sort of thing. Obviously, the the federal raid on the home of Mark Houck is a story that was almost untouched by national media. And uh, the other day when it was actually brought up in a House hearing, I think PBS actually mentioned it in passing. And I thought, wow, you know, mm -hmm. it's pretty bizarre when I'm happy that Mark Houck's case gets like 20 seconds. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this is part of it is, They'll say to me, one of our debates in-house, would you prefer a story that's uh, that's mangled or would you refer, prefer a no story so there's no mangling? I would much rather have them put out this story of Mark Houck and have people go, wait a minute, I'm going to I'm going to go online and try to find out more about this case. Yeah. So one of the, re the one of the ways they succeed or think they succeed is by doing all of this and then creating this whole sense. Uh, and they've been doing this since the nineties. I did studies on this in the nineties, you know, violence against abortion clinics. And the point I would try to make at the time was, yes, it is not right to shoot an abortion doctor, but there's violent, a, an abortion doctor commits violence on a daily basis. That is his job or her job. These people will not recognize that abortion is an act of violence. I mean, it is the, in many cases, it's either, you know, it's the, it's the removal limb by limb, or it's, you know, using basically acid to destroy a baby. I mean, it, it's an extremely violent act and uh, they want to glorify it. They even make happy movies about it, like Obvious Child seems like many reporters, um, their mission has gone from reporting the facts to affecting change. When did that and how did that happen? Well, some of that comes early, you know, in the in the Woodward and Bernstein era. Mm -hmm. And obviously in the 1970s with the Roe versus Wade decision, there there was certainly a, you know, the 70s were very feminist. But you know, I think when I started in 1989, there was still some sense of, well, we need to have 
one side and the other side in some of these stories. But, you know, I remember going back and doing, um, we like to study labels. What kind of labels do they give the feminist groups? What kind of labels do they give the, the social conservative groups? So we put in the hopper, we got in our nexus system, um, newspaper stories that mention concerned women for America on the right and the National Organization for Women on the left, and now was a much bigger deal in the 90s than they are anymore. Well, now is labeled liberal like three times in 700 stories. They were labeled feminist 10 times. They were just normally just a women's group or a women's rights group. Concerned Women for America, this is the funny thing. I think they were mentioned in 70 or 80 stories, like one-tenth of the stories or the mentions that now got. And they were labeled conservative like 34% of the time as a conservative. There's nothing wrong with describing a conservative group as conservative. But one of the things that liberals always do is they take all of their favorite groups and deny them a label other than something that sounds really positive, like they're fighting for women's reproductive health care. Oh, Tim, you, you, you've nailed it right on the head. You know, the great example of that in the movement right now. So the AP style book uh, now has, you can't refer to them as crisis pregnancy centers or anything like that. They are anti-abortion centers. That's what you have to call them, uh, according to the AP style book, which is a label, right? Which, you know, hey, it's actually okay. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's probably okay. But then by definition, isn't Planned Parenthood pro-abortion? Center, of course, you'll never hear them say that. Yeah, and to call it a pro-abortion center wouldn't be as accurate as calling a crisis pregnancy center an anti-abortion center because what it tries to do is talk women out of a violent murder. Um, whereas to call Planned Parenthood a pro-abortion center would seem to avoid what their actual primary business is, which is killing children. And so, yeah, I mean, they hate the word pro-abortion. I remember going to a college class probably in the 90s, and I made this point that, you know, they, they should be called pro-abortion. And one young lady got very upset. And I said, well, look, if you were upset that you couldn't smoke in a business uh, and there should be more smoking and there should be more smoking bars and, and smoking lounges and airports, you'd be seen as pro-smoking. But you, your side complains that there aren't enough abortion centers, that there should be one within 10 miles of every woman in America. You think abortions are too rare. You're happy when an abortion happens, and yet you don't want to be called pro-abortion. You know, obviously, when you say, I, I favor zero restrictions on abortion, I think that's pro-abortion. We're visiting with Tim Graham from Newsbusters and the Media Research Center. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about what pro-life organizations can do to get their story out. We'll do that next here on Dear Jane. Dear Jane, the life-giving podcast. Are you a pro-life organization trying to make a difference in the lives of abortion-minded women? Look no further than Choose Life Marketing, the pro-life agency dedicated to spreading the messages of hope, and love with expert services in web design digital marketing fundraising and branding clm helps you reach those who need it most and provide them with life-affirming alternatives choose life marketing is your ally in the fight for life empowering you to make a lasting impact and change hearts one click at a time step up and join us in spreading hope to abortion-minded women and transforming lives 
Choose Life Marketing, where marketing meets compassion. On this edition of People You Should Know, we introduce you to Mike Yowler, the director of Courageous Dads at a Woman's Concern in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Mike says engaging fathers early is critical. The first person that the woman usually tells is the father of the baby. Um, And then what happens next determines the life of the child. And so um, when we can get a guy to understand that there's positives in the decision, um, so many of the men will uh, think they're doing a good job by letting their girlfriend know um, that they'll do whatever they want. They'll, They'll support them with whatever choice they make. I have learned that that just causes more anxiety for the girl that every decision is still hers and she would love it to be a joint decision. Mike says new fathers often need help navigating the various emotions involved in a new pregnancy. I just it's sort of empowering the men in that moment that they really realize I do have a say this is good and um, and so when they're having a negative um, viewpoint I try to get them to see the positives. Um, And then uh, when they have a positive viewpoint uh, in choosing life, I really want them to find the correct way to share that with their girl. He says Courageous Dads helps new fathers connect with other men in similar situations. What's so great about it is um, it's 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 life skills. um, It's them, you know, many of them that come in for the. The men's night they share aside from how great the pizza was that being able to talk with other men in similar situations was really special to them the courageous dads program focuses on helping new fathers with job skills and training money management and relationship building with the child's mother mike says these important elements help men understand their role as a father that everything that they have heard or thought was the mom's role they now are taking responsibility for because now they have the tools to do it. And uh, I can just see the the light bulbs every week. Like when we're in there, they're just, they're glowing, they're excited, they're asking questions. Now they have a common piece and that baby is that common denominator and they wanna be great for the baby. To learn more about the Courageous Dads program, visit fatherhoodlancaster.com. Unleash your curiosity, challenge your assumptions, and discover the power of dialogue that bridges the divide. Dear Jane is your compass to navigate the complexities of life's most debated topic. Get ready for a podcast that will make you think, question, and maybe even change your mind. Tune in to Dear Jane and embark on a journey that will challenge your beliefs and expand your understanding. Dear Jane, the life-giving podcast. And we're back here on Dear Jane, visiting with Tim Graham from Newsbusters and the Media Research Center. We're talking about the obvious bias that the media has when it comes to anything abortion-related. So, Tim, we've kind of set the stage on how bad it is. Um, What if you're a pro-life group looking to get your story out? Uh, You're trying to get the truth out about what you do. We talk a lot with uh, pro-life organizations like pregnancy centers and that sort of thing. And, of course... A lot of them are hesitant to really try to deal with the media or anything else because they know they're not going to get a fair shake. What advice do you have for these groups, or is it hopeless? No, I think I think it always makes sense to go out and share what your mission is. 
And if it gets distorted, it's the same thing. Do you just avoid them so that they don't smear you and try to destroy you? Or do you actually go out and try to engage with them? And I think that it is important to engage. You know, USA Today, just a couple weeks ago, had a whole section, I think it was called Birth and Death or something. And it had a big story on maternal mortality, but it also had a story on crisis pregnancy centers. And it was, it had all the usual tone in it. But then you say, yeah, but there's actually a, another side in here. They're actually getting some words out. And I think to some degree, some readers may not be familiar with the idea that these centers actually exist and may exist in their community. So right. I, I do think you have to get out there and engage. And you, you know, obviously, if you run into Kate Smith at CBS, maybe you, you, you know, if you know a a reporter is a bad actor, maybe you'd say, no, it's okay, uh, you know, or or call her and tell her she's a bad actor, and then say no. But I think for the most part, if you don't know whether a reporter is a a big abortion activist, I think you should try to engage and tell your story. You know, I used to be a reporter way back when, and I, and when we would have these conversations, I would tell people, I, I don't know that the media is as biased as they are lazy. Um, now I'm starting to wonder. I think now it's more clear that they are clearly biased, but lazy is still a big part of it because, you know, a lot of times the progressive side of the story is the easy side to tell, right? The government needs no mo more money. Let's raise taxes. That's, you know, just an example. Um what do you think? Is it is it just 100% biased or, or are they lazy as well? Well, I think if your mission is to achieve change, it's easy to be lazy, you know, other than doing the story you need to do to affect change. And what happens is, yes, you're not displaying any curiosity. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing that really drives me nuts is that people like this who are flagrantly biased We'll, we'll run around and like Jim Acosta and say, I'm for the facts. I'm the person that's fighting for the truth. And of course, they equate the truth with when we win, we are the truth. And, and it's that complete lack of humility that's, to me, as opposed to reporting. If you wanted to be a reporter, the first thing you should at least try to do is, I try to assess the situation. What is, what is happening on the ground? Who are the players? Um, and that's where, yeah, sometimes with stories where you can tell that they're not studying who the players are is when there's 17 people quoted and none of them are on the wrong side. <laughs> you're like you you or they end up in paragraph 28. It's like, yeah, you're not really trying very hard to get at the center of something and and learn more about it. And I think that that's. If you're a conservative reporter, if you're a religious conservative reporter, you're still going to want to engage with the other side and try to figure out what makes them tick. Uh, and I, I think what's really important, one of the things that reporters don't have with humility is they don't try to assume the position of the other side in its, in its idealism. We can understand where the pro-abortion idealism is because they're basically saying we think female autonomy is central or else a woman isn't truly free. It's their, it's their number one civil right. And I, we, I think we accurately understand that. But I, you know, I think that they fail to recognize or don't want to recognize 
the idealism of the pro-life movement. What is their ideal? You know, to say that we want an end to an uh, to abortion to them sounds like a horror show because they're very pro-abortion. So they don't see that as an ideal and they approach everything they do based on that idea. Um, and this is why they're running around. They, they call abortion a civil right, just like they call all the, tr- the, the, the LGBTQ or the transgender rights. You know, the Republicans are repealing civil rights, like the right for a man to be on a woman's sports team. You know, um, so these this is the lingo that they use. I mean, a big part of media bias then is, yes, policing the lingo. And sometimes it's fact checking the fact checkers because that's mm-hmm. a very fraught thing, as we already discussed about there's no such thing as abortion up until birth. It's so frustrating that the groups that they give credence to, that the media gives credence to. There was a report recently, this uh, Center for Countering Digital Hate. Oh, yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's always interesting when they cite a conservative source or think tank or study they quickly go to well this was funded by you know Mm -hmm. they want to point out just so you have some questions about this but a group like this who comes out with all kinds of nonsense their latest one of their latest in terms of as it relates to life is they're mad at google for running ads for pregnancy centers um (laughs) it's amazing that they give credence to these these obviously biased organizations and they they somehow, you know, give them credibility. Like there's some sort of a scientific group. Yes. In fact, I, I would have to add a note of disclosure. The media research center, I think is one of their toxic 10. Um, So yes, a group called the center for counts countering digital hate is a, first of all, is a British group. And uh, they're they're neatly tied in with the Labour Party in Britain, which is so kooky left that they can't get elected in Europe. Um, but yes, I, obviously, when you you have a name like this, what do they really mean when they're countering digital hate? What they really should be called is the Center for Censoring Conservatives. Yeah. Um, they think that toxic misinformation is anything that conservatives have to say, and absolutely, a conservative website or group that, uh, you know, that counters the censorship of big tech as we do at MRC. Well, and that's what I told a reporter. I said, you have to understand from their perspective, the center's perspective, anything pro-life is hate. Uh, And if you start there with an honest assessment of that, then uh, you can actually know what these these people are all about. Um, So getting back to, so let's, let's get back to telling the story or telling the truth, telling the mission, that sort of thing. Um, where do you begin? Uh, I know a lot of people, when we talk to, especially a lot of these local pro-life groups, they're just, they're, they're intimidating um, because anymore when they think of the media, they think of who they see on CNN and Fox News and all of that. And local media is different. Um, what kind of, do you have any kind of advice or guidance on here's how you even begin dealing with these people? Well, first I'll start with a sad note, which is, you know, on local news now is more trusted than national news, but doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get better treatment. Um, I, this, this happened, uh, a few weeks ago where, uh, 
a station manager was let go for doing an internal memo that said during Pride Month, people, let's realize that there are two sides to Pride Month. There are people who don't support the LGBTQ agenda. And the corporation that owned the television stations had to apologize for this memo, and he was let go. And I think that that underlines that the left is going to try to take hold of any media outlet across the country. And this is why I would say I think it's important when possible to try to engage with local news. Um, or certainly if they come to engage with you, I think it's important to try to do that. But, you know, obviously, kind of, again, the, kind of the first thing you need to do if you're a local pro-life group is, yeah, master your local media. Know, you know, which sources are reliable, and which are hopeless. And maybe you don't go talk to the hopeless one. But, you know, I think there are still people out there who think that the news is going out and interviewing both sides of a story. I mean, sadly, that is not as common as it used to be. All kinds of great resources available on the website, newsbusters.org. Tim Graham with the Media Research Center. Thank you very much for joining us here today on Dear Jane. Dear Jane, the life-giving podcast. My thanks again to Tim Graham from Newsbusters for joining us here today. Don't gloss over what Tim had to say there at the end. If you're a local pro-life group, Sitting by in silence is not the answer. There are ways to work with the media to get your story out at least a little. Identify the most honest reporters in your market. Start to build a relationship with them. You can start with a phone call or private tour. Even though it won't change the bias that the media has towards pro-life organizations, we can't just sit and let the other side define who we are and what we stand for. Thank you for listening to Dear Jane. I'm Scott Baker. Our producer is Kate Ewell. Our editor is Jacob McCormick. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Just search for Dear Jane Podcast. Also, remember to follow us on your podcast platform of choice. Dear Jane is a production of the Choose Life Coalition. Thank you for listening.